God, that he may teach us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 6. Second Kings 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 145, stanza 5. The text to which we'll be giving our attention is the same one that we've read, the verses 1 through 7 of Second Kings chapter 6, a very brief account, a very mysterious one, an intriguing one that I hope you will benefit from as much as I did. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the question that stood before me as I was working through the text, I'd read it several times over and over, is what am I to make of this brief text? I almost considered just passing over it and hoping you wouldn't notice. After all, this is a long series, there's a lot to talk about in Kings. And yet it stands there and it calls for our attention, this this little text. At a first reading, it it almost seems like a a little bit of legend inserted into the, the history of Israel. Just this intriguing story about Elisha. Well, sometimes when we come across texts like these and and we're not sure what to make of them, sometimes we forget to pay attention to the things that are right there in front of us. Things that are so obvious that we overlook them. And I would argue that's the case with this text as well. Before we get into what God would teach us from this text, there is a question I want to address because I think it's on some of our minds, or if it's not in our minds, it's at least in our attitude towards texts like this, and it's the question whether we can believe this text. Did it really happen, or is this the stuff of legends? Do intelligent, reasonable people like us accept a story like this to be true, factual, or is this the result of an overactive imagination on the part of you know, later generations that looked back and... and uh, and elaborated on on the legend of the man, Elisha. That's the view that a lot of commentaries take, a lot of people who claim to hold to the authority of Scripture, and yet they regard events like these as legend. 
Well, how we answer that question reveals a lot about what we believe about our God. Let me ask in the first place, if you are inclined in your own nature to to dismiss this as legend, is there any reason in your mind why you think God wouldn't do something like this? Is it something that we believe about God that makes us skeptical of stories like these? And if so, consider with me, The God who created the universe, the God who formed you and fashioned you and put you together and and created everything in this world with all of its beauty and its complexion, uh, is it not reasonable, and I would argue almost impossible not to be true, that God would also get involved in the creation that He has made? Especially if it's true that As we confess, God created us so that we would know Him. We saw this uh, a while back as we were looking at the commandments. And the first commandment teaches us that we were made for relationship with our God. If God made us to know Him, would God not be involved in the details of our lives in ways even like this? Uh, So then, is there something in our minds that that causes us to say God wouldn't do something like this? Is there something we believe about God that makes us skeptical of stories like these? See, there, there are a lot of people in, in our culture who believe in God in, in a general sense. They believe that God exists, that He's out there, but they totally reject the notion that God would do something like we read about in our text. Uh, and, and that reveals that there is in their minds a certain presupposition about who God is and what God is like. If we're inclined to disbelieve a text like this, what kind of God does that teach us that we, we believe we have, that we think He is? It's an important question because it has tremendous implications for how we view God in the course of our own lives. Well, consider, at least for the sake of argument, that, uh, that this text is a, a recording of an incident that, that did indeed happen, that the author is being truthful in, in all that he writes. If that's the case, would there be anything that he would have written differently? Is there anything that the author could have written, if this story was true, that he could have written that would persuade someone who, who disbelieves it, that would persuade them otherwise? I suspect not. The text reads like one who, like the, the account of one who was there. If this had indeed happened, would this text have been any different? And so if, if we do receive this record and, and, and sort of receive it with a, a skeptical eye, it isn't because of something fishy in this record. That's important to, to understand. It's not because there's something not right about this text. If we do find ourselves skeptical, it's because of something we believe about God and about this universe. Because we believe God wouldn't do something like this. And if that's the case, then I would say to you, meet your God here in 2 Kings 6. The notion that so many people have of a God who is distant and detached from His people, who would, who would never do miraculous things of this nature, that's not the God that you find in Scripture. 
The God of Scripture is consistently the God that we find here in 2 Kings 6. The God who, who gets His hands dirty, so to speak, in the things and the affairs of His creation, who cares about the little details. And I would say it's, it's reasonable to think that the God, the God of creation who paints the colors on, on, on the thousands of flowers that we see springing up around us and, and who engineers the, the mechanical wonders within the, the, the cells that he has built within us, the God who builds this world should be expected to be the kind of God who gets involved in, in the details and the affairs of this world, who interacts uh, visibly and audibly with his creation so that we can know him. The, the deist notion of God, uh, which is the God of so many in our culture that are neither, neither Christian nor atheist, but somewhere in between. There's a God, he's out there, but he, he doesn't get involved in our world. He's a fundamentally self-contradicting God. A God who made us for Himself, who endowed us with reason that we would come to know Him, and a desire to know Him and worship Him, but then who holds Himself back, who distances Himself from His creation so that we'll never actually find Him or know Him. It's a self-contradicting view of God. It's, it's, I believe, the weakest theory of God out there. Uh, at least atheism is inherently, uh, is internally uh, non-contradictory. To believe that there is no God and there is no meaning in the world at least doesn't contradict itself. But the idea that there's a God who you'll never get to know, who, who cannot be known, is an inherently contradictory view of God. But it's one that many, many in our culture, have. If God has created us, then He's created us so that we would know Him. And if He's created us so that we would know Him, we should expect that He would be involved in the details of our lives. That's the God that you find in Scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation, a God who is deeply involved in His world. Now, I emphasize this not because I think we're a congregation full of you know, deists or agnostics, uh, but because despite our, our shared confession, this is often the way that we think about God when it comes to our lives, that God would not get His hands dirty in the details of, of my life. Uh, we, we often think this way, that God is out there, but we, we view with skepticism the idea that, that He would be personally involved in our lives, that He would speak into our lives, that He would work powerfully, even miraculously, in our lives. And that, that skepticism comes to the surface when you read texts like the ones that are before us. So, brothers and sisters, meet your God here in Second Kings chapter 6. Having said that, then, by way of introduction, let's just look at a few things that are right here on the surface of our text, things that we could easily overlook. And I want to make two observations about the church from this text, and then three observations about God uh, that we see in this text. First, we, we see a growing church community, a growing church community here in verse 1. He says, Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. 
This is a problem that we're going to be dealing with here in Alora pretty soon as well. But it's not something that we should forget or overlook when it comes to the church of that time. In our day, it's still much easier to, to live in this society as Christians than it was to live as God-fearers in that day. And yet, in spite of all the opposition that the prophets were facing, and in spite of all the pressures that the land of Israel was experiencing with foreign armies ready to sweep in and, and clean the place out, uh, yet God was growing His church through the faithful ministry of Elisha. And, and the, simple reason, the simple reason that the church was growing was because people could see that Elisha was speaking the words of God and doing the works of God. They were attracted to Elisha because they saw in him the words and the work and the power of God. It really is that simple when it comes to the growing church of that day. And now I recognize that Elisha was endowed with, with special powers that, that uh, we don't experience ourselves. And yet that alone does not explain the growth of the church. It wasn't simply that they were attracted to the miracles performed by Elisha. If you count all the miracles that Elisha did, at least the ones that are recorded for us, you get maybe a dozen or so. And that's over the course of his entire life. People weren't attracted to Elisha simply because they saw miraculous things uh, coming from him. For the, va- the, vast, excuse me, for the vast majority of them, uh, Elisha's power was not something that made life easier for the individual members of the church. Uh, the controversies that Elisha would get himself involved in made life even harder for them. Uh, People came because they saw that God was with Elisha, primarily, I believe, through the preaching that Elisha was regularly involved in. These were people who feared the Lord God, and that comes through the preaching of God's Word. These were people who wanted to model their lives after the truth that they recognized through the voice of Elisha. Uh, Most of them did not expect to benefit from his miraculous power. But they saw in him the words and the work of God, and they knew that this was the God that they must fear and must serve. So that's the first thing. We see a growing church community. Secondly, we also see a needy church community. A needy church community. In general, these were not wealthy individuals. They were poor, and their lives were very simple. Uh, you see this in verse 2. They said to one another, Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a dozen loads of, uh, of two-by-fours and steel I-beams and cedar siding and natural stone. No, they didn't say that. They said, Let's go to the Jordan, and let's each of us get a log. A simple log. Because that's all that they could afford. This was not a wealthy community. Uh, and we can see that, uh, that they desired to live together also because they depended on one another. Uh, they were each going to build, they were gonna, uh, build for themselves a simple home for all of them to dwell in together. Uh, that was the church in the days of Elisha, a very poor and needy community. The Jordan also was not the best real estate. Uh, there, there were no major cities along the Jordan. Uh, they were just looking for something simple and affordable. We can also observe that they were hardworking. 
they were looking at a project that was going to involve hard manual labor, chopping trees, milling those trees with hand tools. This is hard work. Now, consider this, this believer who ended up losing this, this axe head. He's just one of the believers in that community. We don't ever actually get to know his name. And, and it says, as they were felling these trees, his axe head fell into the water. It says, literally, the, the iron fell in the water. So it must have slipped off the handle as he was swinging, and it just uh, fell off and, and would have gone flying off into, into the Jordan. Now, the Jordan River is not a huge river. It's probably half the size, roughly half the size of the Grand River, uh, though it may have been a little bit bigger in that day. Uh, we have to recognize that climate also changes. In the Bible, the land of Israel was a lush green land, whereas uh, if you go there today, it, it certainly is not. Uh, so it may have been a little bit bigger then, but it was certainly also a muddy river. We saw that last week with Naaman as well. It was a muddy, stinky river. It's not the sort of water you would, you would swim in. And if you were to toss a, a heavy iron implement into the waters of the Jordan, you would not find it back again. The water was just too muddy and opaque. And here's the problem for this believer. The axe head was borrowed. You see there also his poverty. And iron implements, even simple things like axe heads, were not cheap in those days. You can imagine the hard work that would have gone into uh, mining the iron by hand, transporting it, melting it, shaping it into an axe head. All of these things by hand, no factories, no mass production, uh, so no, no economy of scale. These were expensive implements. So we shouldn't read this story and think, you know, it was just an axe head. What's the big deal? In terms of the man hours required to purchase or produce uh, a, uh, an, an axe head, uh, I think a good comparison today would be something like losing a very expensive power tool or, or even a small car. Uh, and, and remember, there's no insurance here either. This man was already too poor to own an axe head himself. It was inaccessible to him. It was something he could not afford. And, and now he's going to have to find a way to pay back the one that he has lost. This could easily be a couple months' uh, income. And, and depending on what other debts he might have already had, you can imagine this, would have, this could have pushed the man over the brink into having to sell himself into slavery to pay back this debt. So we want to appreciate what a needy community this was. And, and especially then what a hard situation this, this particular believer was in. He had not been dealt an easy hand by God, and now that hand got a lot harder. I worked for a man once who, in the space of a single week, had his truck broken into twice and all of his power tools stolen. Uh, this, this man was a Christian, but he had not had an easy life and now this, on top of the, the, the trials he had already been asked by God to endure. And when things like this happen, we start to question the goodness of God, don't we? We start to wonder, God, you've given me this trial, this burden, that affliction, and now this? When will it stop? We can start to doubt the goodness of God. So these are the two observations I want to make about that church community. They were growing by God's grace, but they were also needy, a poor community. 
Let's turn now and make some observations about God from this text. First, we want to recognize that God was present. God was present with that small, needy church community. God's presence was especially manifested, of course, in the person of Elisha. Uh, we, we recognize that God's Spirit was not distributed to all the people to the same degree that God's Spirit is distributed today in the New Testament age. Uh, God focused His presence on the prophet that He had sent. And that's why when, when this community wants to go and build for themselves some homes, they ask Elisha to go with them, because Elisha carried with him the presence of God. And, and Elisha was willing to go, and we recognize there also the, the willingness of God to be with His people, to go wherever they go. And that's why even though this, this was a, a poor community, at least in one sense, they, they did not feel poor because they recognized they had Elisha and they had God himself with them. That's what brought them together in the first place. That's why they chose to be a small, needy church community instead of perhaps more affluent unbelievers in in Israel's society. They did not feel poor. They understood themselves to be very rich. And, And when this brother then lost his axe head, he cried out to Elisha, and God used that moment to remind the whole community that God was with them. God wasn't just showing off when he, when he made the axe head float. He was showing the church, I'm with you. My power is here to support you. He was letting the church know that he had not forsaken them. Now, I couldn't find any significance to the fact that uh, Elisha had to break off a stick and, and throw it in the water. There's a, a bunch of amazing theories out there, but I don't find them all altogether convincing. Some of the old church fathers said that the stick represents the cross because it's made of wood, and, and there's a substitution there. You throw the cross in, and, and the axe head floats. So there's a substitution of the cross. I don't know. I'm not entirely convinced. Uh, but what we can say is that is that God is willing to get involved in, in little ways that we might consider too earthly or too lowly for God. God could have you know, spoken from heaven and said, float, O axe head. But he didn't. He got himself involved by throwing a little stick in the water and making the axe head float in that way. That's how God chose to do it. There's no magic here, of course. It's just God's power working in God's own way for God's own reasons. But consider what a tremendous message this little incident would have sent to the church of that day. The entire church could be reassured that God was with them, despite their poverty, despite uh, their, their insignificance and even foolishness, In the eyes of the world, God was with them. God is not too great, too majestic to associate himself with a tiny community of believers who don't look like much in the eyes of the world, but are much in the eyes of God. That's the first thing that we want to see about God, that God is present with his church. Secondly, we can also see God's care for the church, including God's care for, for things that we might regard as insignificant. See, we might think, you know, doesn't God have bigger things to do than recover uh, an, an iron axe head? Uh, it just seems for us almost too lowly for God. God has nations to direct 
after all. He has big things on his agenda. Why does God take the time to cause an axe head to float? Well, here again, we need to become acquainted with our God. We often have a hard time believing it for some reason, but God cares about the little things in our lives as well. In the grand scheme of things, sure, this is just an axe head. But it was a big deal to this believer, and so it was a big deal to God. I remember a couple of uh, Christmases ago, uh, we were visiting my grandparents in in Colorado, and the day we left, uh, my parents discovered that there was a leak in the fuel line, and and the, the van was leaking fuel very, very quickly. Now, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a big deal. But obviously, we, we, it was a big deal to us in the moment. We had to figure something out. And it was a Saturday. It was a holiday. Uh, it, it was not likely we were going to find someone to, uh, to fix it. And we had big plans for the day. There were hotels that were already paid for and, and so forth. But what struck me is that my grandma started praying for the fuel line in the car. And I thought, that's, that's strange. It's not something I would have done. Uh, to me, that's not the sort of thing that, that you, you pray for. You pray to God for safety. You pray to God for, for people who are sick. But you don't pray to God for a fuel line. Or do you? Why, why wouldn't you, after all, pray to God for something as simple as a fuel line? You see, my grandma was right to pray. God is with us. God does hear our prayers, and God cares about things that are a big deal to us. It's a lesson that I think all of us need to learn. It's true that, I think it's true of many of us, that we are hesitant to pray to God for, for the little things, or the things that we consider little. We somehow figure that God has bigger things on His agenda, that He shouldn't have to care about these little earthly things that we have to be involved with. Uh, But why is that? Is not God our Father? Isn't that what the Lord Jesus uh, taught us? Your Heavenly Father knows your needs, uh, and and your needs matter to Him. You are His child. As we confess also in the Catechism, uh, not a hair falls from our head without our Father's will. He cares about something as simple as our hair. So we should Pray for the little things, especially if they're, they're not so little to us. If it's a big, a big enough deal for us to worry about it, then surely it's a big enough deal for us to pray to our Father about it. And that's the response that this believer had who lost this axe head. He cried out to Elisha. There's the response of faith, calling out to God for something as simple as an axe head because he knew that God was able to help him. And he knew that God cared enough to help him. Don't assume that God has too many important things on his agenda for him to take the time to deal with what you might consider the little things in your life, things that we consider insignificant. We see this in the Lord's Prayer as well. Jesus gives us three big petitions, right? Uh, your, Your name in all the earth, your kingdom over all the earth, your will done over all the earth, and then also our daily bread, our, our sins, our temptations, the, the little things of our lives, our, our lost power tools, our, our broken vehicles. If they matter to you, they matter to God. 
This is also why we have a prayer service for crops and labor. We recognize these are needs that we have. We need God's blessing on our crops. We need God's support of our labor. These are a big deal to us. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, you can say, yes, if this year doesn't go well, it's not a a life-changing big deal, but it is a big deal right now for us. These are not insignificant things for us, and so we recognize they're not insignificant to God either. We should be praying about things like our crops, like our work, like our power tools, things of that nature. That's the second point then that, uh, about God that we want to see, that God cares for His church. And the last point is this, that God also has greater purposes for His church. God recovered this axe head because He knew that it would be an, enc- an encouragement and a comfort to the church in that moment. Uh, it's not surprising that this, this small event ends up in our Bibles because you can imagine the impact it would have had on the church community. This was something they would have been talking about for days, for weeks uh, afterwards, uh, to see the power of God manifested in something as simple uh, as that. At the same time, we should recognize that God doesn't always recover lost axe heads or power tools or or broken vehicles. Uh, God doesn't always give us good crops either. Uh, Again, I don't want to undermine what I've just said, that God does care. God does. He cares. And we should pray. Uh, But God also has greater purposes for us. And sometimes that means He allows us to experience need and experience affliction for His own reasons to prepare us or to make us useful in His purposes. And that's what we also see with this believer who lost his axe head. God could have answered his prayer in a lot of different ways. God could have given this man a three-figure income so that he, he, he never would have had to, uh, to worry about an axe head again. As far as we know, this, this believer probably still remained poor. He still had to give the axe head back. It was still borrowed. He still would have had tremendous need. All he had uh, was this axe head back so that he could return it to its original owner. God could have given him much more. And that's true for every one of these believers. Uh, They were still a poor and needy community, even after God worked miraculously in this way. Uh, There would be others who would lose their axe heads and never get them back. Uh, There were undoubtedly others with even greater afflictions, sick wives, dying children, significant debts to pay for many persecution as well. And God did not take all of these away. You can always uh, observe the same thing in the Lord Jesus' ministry as well. It's a thought that always comes to my head when you read of Jesus healing lepers uh, to recognize that there were many lepers in Israel, that Jesus didn't heal, that he could have, but he didn't. Uh, There were many blind people whose sight Jesus didn't restore. Uh, He told us, uh, the poor will always be with you, even though Jesus could have done something about that. We need to recognize then that God also has greater purposes for his church that sometimes requires us to go through trials and afflictions. Uh, He doesn't... Uh, There are things that he doesn't take away from us, though he could, but instead he uses to prepare us and to refine us 
for glory. Because God has a glorious, much greater purpose for His church. God is preparing us all for eternity. The trials that He gives us here, including the times He delivers us from those trials, they all have a specific purpose in eternity. And that's what governs God's agenda. Uh, The main thing that we want to recognize then is the same thing that the people of that time uh, needed to see as well, that God's purpose for them in their day was to be a needy church community that would honor Him and be a light in the darkness in that that spiritually dark and empty world. God showed this, this occasion of special grace to them uh, to, remind, to remind them that He cares for them, that He has their interests and needs in mind. But He does also teach us that, uh, that, that if, if we are following Him, we will face afflictions. And the church of that day faced afflictions. Uh, he wants us to know that He's with us and He cares, but ultimately He will be working for our greatest joy, which is a joy that we have in eternity with Him, not a fullness of joy that we experience here on earth. There are times when God does not uh, recover axe heads or take away afflictions. There are times when the crops don't go well. Uh, You think of the thorn in the flesh that that Paul said that God had given him, that uh, he had prayed many times for God to remove, and God's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power will be, known, uh, will be made known in weakness. Sometimes that's where we are most useful to God. Sometimes that's where we ourselves most need to be. That was certainly the case with this church community. God used their smallness and their lowliness to highlight His power and His truth through them. Uh, to show Israel uh, as a nation that what they needed most was not uh, going to be prosperity, but, but they needed more than anything the nearness and the truth of God. And God in God's view, a small, needy church community who, who saw themselves as richer because they were near to God than they would be if they had material prosperity, that was useful in God's purposes for all the nation of Israel. The same is undoubtedly true for us. We are here to put the glory of God and the grace of God on display in this world. God's purpose for you is not to take your suffering away. That's not God's highest purpose. His purpose is to prepare us for usefulness, uh, for His purposes and for eternity, which means that sometimes, indeed even most of the time, God's purposes are higher than ours and we're not going to understand why He does what He does. He has a higher goal for us. But what we need to know uh, and what this text reminds us of is that because of Christ, God is our Father. We belong to Him and that means we are beloved in his eyes, even in the afflictions he does not take away. We matter tremendously to God. And he will provide for all our needs, and he will answer all of our prayers, either now or in eternity. Nothing will be forgotten, because God knows and loves his children. But he also has purposes 
for us. Christ came to put the, the, the glory of God on display in the world. And that was God's highest purpose, to put His glory on display. That through the knowledge of Christ, we and the world through us would come to know the only true God, to love Him and to live with Him for eternity. That's what's best for us. And that's God's purposes through us. And sometimes the the best means to the highest ends is that we who belong to Christ would have to suffer afflictions and trials so that we ourselves would be brought nearer to Him so that He also would be glorified in and through us. So brothers and sisters, know this. God is with us. God does Love us, and all, and he loves us all the more because we've been made to belong to Christ, and he does therefore care about the little things. We should be a church that prays for the little things in our lives, things that we might consider too small for God to deal with. But we also recognize that in it all, God has higher, greater purposes for all of it. So we can trust him to give us exactly. What we need. We can know that he, he not only hears our every prayer, but He has our best interests at heart in our every prayer. And that comes through in His answers. We can trust that whatever He gives us, whether it's prayers answered with yes, or prayers answered with no, or prayers answered with not right now, God still has our best interests at heart. He has greater purposes for us. He intends to make much use of us, and ultimately he he intends to prepare us for glory. This is our God. So know him, brothers and sisters, love him, trust him, and live your life very near to him. Amen.